I'm delighted at the moment to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Tom Tim Borstelman, the Elwood N. and Catherine Thompson Distinguished Professor of World History. Professor Borstelman joined the UNL faculty in, in 2003 after teaching at Cornell University from 1991 until 2003. He earned his undergraduate degree at Stanford and his MA and PhD degrees from Duke University. He has written extensively in the areas of uh, US 20th century history and international relations. And in addition to teaching responsibilities in the history department, Tim Borstelman has been a valued contributor to the honors curriculum, offering upper division seminars, honors 395H, on a regular basis. And for that, we are very grateful. Professor Borstelman's topic this evening is more and less equal, the reshaping of democracy since the 1970s. Please welcome Professor Borstelman. Thank you, Dr. Berger. It's a great pleasure to be part of this series. It's a wonderful thing, and I'm glad to see several survivors of uh, some earlier engagements with me that exist in this classroom, who've been through some of my classes. The fact that they're here attests to their enormous sense of kindness, generosity, uh, determination, and I can think of a few other admirable adjectives. Um, delighted to have them. Uh, you know, I want to talk about the 1970s, and I realize that partly what I'm doing, of course, is talking about my own life. And so let's just make confessions at the beginning for anybody. I want to save you doing the difficult math. I was 12 when this decade began, and I was 22 when it ended. So uh, I was precisely in your shoes uh, in terms of your experience with the 2000s. Um, and therefore, the 1970s are, for me, the, the era of coming of age. But the 1970s are an era of ill repute in US history. A kidney stone of a decade, one character in the cartoon Doonesbury famously called it. Vietnam, Watergate, oil crises, stagflation, and hostage crises, it seemed a veritable roll call of decline in, and defeat in American public life. The institutions of private life appeared just as weak. You had families which collapsed amidst soaring divorce rates, most dramatically. Even the aesthetics of popular culture in the 1970s were grim, from polyester pantsuits to uh, pet rocks and disco music to orange shag carpets. It's, it's really a grim story for anybody with any sort of aesthetic sense. And I didn't have an abundant one as a teenage male in this era, but I remember it well enough to be a little amazed at the time. Writer Joe Queenan recalls the decade as a time of bad hair, bad clothes, bad music, bad design, bad books, bad economics, bad carpeting, bad fabric, and a lot of bad ideas. The President of the United States himself, in fact, seemed to agree with this analysis. I must say to you that the state of our union is not good, President Ford announced in 1975. The use of addictive drugs, both legal and illegal, was widespread. Indeed, one nonpartisan wag observed Riley that having Ford and Jimmy Carter both having lived in the White House was po a possible explanation for the rampant substance abuse at the time. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David Kennedy at Stanford University lamented what he called the odd blend of political disillusionment and pop culture daffiness that gave the 1970s their distinctive flavor. 
two of the best historians of these years, Beth Bailey and David Farber at Temple University, have found them to be perhaps our strangest decade, a period of incoherent impulses, contradictory desires, and even a fair amount of self-flagellation. Now, self-flagellation, of course, was once an admired sign of monastic spiritual devotion and discipline, by, but by this era of hot tubs and the sexual revolution, self-flagellation was a mere code word for failing to absorb the message of one of the decade's best-selling books entitled, I'm okay, you're okay. The neighbors, chronologically speaking, are part of the problem for the 1970s and for writing its history and understanding it. Both the 1960s and the 1980s have clear storylines of strong reforming forces and exciting social and political conflicts, and each of those decades has developed a, a substantial literature of memoir and historical analysis. For the 1970s, this is somewhat akin to the old problem faced by those of us who grew up as historically minded residents of the state of North Carolina, situated between Virginia and South Carolina, where we like to refer to our state as a valley of humility between two mountains of conceit. The 1970s have a similar status, falling between two real decades when important movements and great events seem to happen, for better or worse. In fact, though, the misunderstood 1970s turned out to be a crucial period of change and adjustment that has shaped the contours of U.S. history and really of global history ever since. The decade did begin and end with trauma, a series of jolts, like a line of thunderstorms, perhaps, rolling across our beloved prairie here in Nebraska. Defeat in the long American war in Vietnam in 1973, the terrible new economic condition of stagflation, the OPEC oil embargo and resulting oil crisis, and the Watergate scandal that brought down Pre President Richard Nixon to start the decade, and the near disaster, nuclear disaster, at Three Mile Island, the hostage crisis in Tehran, the second oil crisis, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan to finish off the decade. It was quite a start and quite a finish. It is our bicent bicentennial year uh, and we don't seem to know how to celebrate it, wrote in 1976 the prominent Washington journalist Elizabeth Drew. Our history, she concluded, began so grandly, and it doesn't seem so grand anymore. In the mid-1970s, Americans seemed increasingly to think of themselves no longer as a chosen people, but more often as mere survivors. Survivors of the Vietnam War, survivors of cancer, survivors of in the words of one historian of films, the sinking ships, burning buildings, shark attacks, zombie invasions, and other disasters and tragedies that reflected the siege mentality and were staples of Hollywood in this era. Think Jaws or The Towering Inferno or Aliens or any of those other wonderful films that came out in the mid-1970s. President Ford himself survived two assassination attempts in November of 1975 alone. Americans were dismayed at hostage crises where no one was freed, such as the 11 Israeli athletes and coaches seized and executed by Palestinian terrorists at the 1972 Munich Olympic Games. And Americans increasingly identified with Israel as the ultimate survivor nation due to the cost of European Jews in World War II. In 1980, as a kind of capstone to the decade, 
The American Psychiatric Association, the APA, uh, and its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is a, a sort of triannually updated uh, handout that they provide to the broader community, added post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, as we know it today, to its roster for the first time in 1980. An explicit recognition at that point of the ongoing experiences of Vietnam War veterans, but I think also a metaphor for American society as a whole by the end of the 1970s. So, if the United States did not win all its wars, if its leaders could no longer be trusted, if its oil wells could not provide enough fuel for its drivers, and if its jobs no longer paid rising real wages so that each generation could continue to expect a higher living standard than each previous generation, as had long been the case in the United States, what then was the nation's future? How would a democratic society, one that had long considered itself the leader and the primary model of the free world continue to survive and to flourish? The answer came in the form of two powerful undercurrents that flowed just beneath the more readily visible surface waves of economic, political, and cultural turmoil. These two undercurrents turned out to be global currents as well, for the United States was neither unique nor exceptional, moving instead in the same direction as most of the rest of the world in this era. The first of our two undercurrents of the 1970s was a spirit of egalitarianism and inclusiveness that increasingly rejected traditional hierarchies and lines of authority, inserting, asserting instead the, the equality of all people, particularly women, gays and lesbians, people of color, and the disabled. That is, if you just do the math, the majority of people by quite a bit. For most Americans, in this sense, what are often considered the 1960s actually happened in the 1970s. The second powerful undercurrent that I want to suggest tonight was a decisive turn toward free market economics as the preferred means for resolving social and political problems well before the election of Ronald Reagan to the presidency in 1980 which is usually thought of as the beginning of this turn toward the free market. Americans across the political spectrum shifted from a faith in collective action through government intervention, represented by the New Deal order since the 1930s that culminated in the 1960s with the Great Society programs, to a new commitment instead to market values as the key to an efficient economy and a fair society. A crucial result of this turn to free markets has been the steady increase in economic inequality in the United States since the late 1970s. So was the United States growing more equal or less equal as a society in this era? And the answer is both. And that's my theme, more equal, less equal. These same two undercurrents of egalitarianism and market values gained significant traction throughout the world during the 1970s as empires declined and capitalism spread. The United States was thus quintessentially a part of, rather than an exception to, the broader world around it. While sometimes in tension with each other, egalitarian values on the one hand and market values on the other hand converged in this era to form a purified version of competitive individualism, a kind of hyper-individualism that you'll recognize at least as much as fish can recognize the water that they swim in. It's the culture that we live in. 
this sort of hyper-individualism and with it a consumer capitalism, a sphere in which all were welcome as buyers and sellers, but the devil might take the hindmost. Don't be the last one. Don't be the loser in this competition. The first theme, the newly ascendant spirit of egalitarianism, was most visible in the 1970s in the lives of American women. Women surged past long-standing barriers that had constrained them in both public and private life, challenging people to reconsider assumptions and behaviors regarding what it meant to be a male human being or a female human being. The intimacy of men and women in each other's lives meant that very few Americans were untouched by this revolution. And I use that word advisedly, for it was a revolution. Feminist organizing and the women's rights movement more generally led directly to, perhaps most importantly, the desegregation of the workplace, with the Supreme Court ruling in 1973 that job listings, for example, could no longer be segregated by sex as they traditionally had been. And just think about the implications of that, for men and women were now considered to be complete and, as it would turn out to be, fierce competitors with themselves, with each other, all together in the marketplace searching for jobs. No more special domestic zones for being just a mom. Women also gained admission for the first time in this era to elite private universities such as Yale and Princeton and into the nation's elite military colleges, West Point, um, the US Naval Academy, uh, and the Air Force Academy. And in higher education more broadly, women began the climb from making up at the beginning of the 1970s about 43% of the undergraduates in American colleges and universities to today when they make up 57 leaning to 58% quite a trend line if you like to project it forward. The passage of Title IX in 1972 brought the inclusion of girls and young women in athletics. It, it didn't just target athletics, it also targeted every other aspect of educational institutions of higher learning that were received federal funding, but physics labs were not much segregated at that time by, by sex, whereas athletic facilities were the most obvious place for this. And that's why Title IX uh, had its hardest impact, most dramatic impact, most liberating impact on athletic facilities. Uh, and it also included the first girls being allowed to play Little League baseball as a result of court decisions in 1974 in Hoboken, New Jersey. They're wonderful photographs of these young girls sitting up there on their first baseball diamond. We can also see the new empowerment of women in the 1970s in the legalization of reproductive rights uh, involving contraception and abortion, in the easing of divorce laws, and in the string of first woman breakthroughs that regularly graced the pages of every newspaper, such as the first woman rabbi, the first woman Episcopal priest, the first Lutheran priest, the first woman Rhodes Scholar, the first woman editor of the Harvard Law Review, the first woman commercial airline pilot, and in 1981, of course, the first woman Supreme Court Justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. The passage of the first state marital rape laws marked perhaps the most fundamental legal advance of women, establishing their elemental control over their own bodies and bolstering their own full individuality even within the institution of marriage. Women were to be property no longer. This is a phenomenon of the 1970s. This rising tide of formal equality in American society could also be measured by a decline in discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation. 
The symbolic moment here came in December of 1973 when the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, uh, decided to eliminate homosexuality for the first time ever from its list of mental disorders so that the nation's foremost medical authorities no longer, suddenly no longer, considered gays and lesbians insane, but rather considered them as psychologically sound as heterosexuals. This was also their, the decade of the first gay pride marches and the first local anti-discrimination ordinances to include the category of sexual orientation. The new spirit of equality encompassed disabled citizens as well as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975. For the first time, mandated the inclusion of physically and mentally handicapped children in a regular classroom environment to the greatest feasible extent and radically changed the percentage of handicapped children who were learning in and among their fully able uh, peers. The number and origins of immigrants to the United States in the 1970s also reflected the increasingly egalitarian and increasingly multicultural ethos of American life. In 1970, after all, the nation really was still mostly white and black. A historic low point that year was in the number and percentage of residents who had come to the United States from elsewhere, from other countries. In the next 10 years, the number of immigrants jumped by 50%, and they were now arriving primarily no longer from Europe, but from Latin America and from Asia. And this shift has created very directly the much more diverse society in which we now live, in which Latinos, for example, just recently, have come to outnumber African Americans. Immigration was part of a broader trend as well of U.S. transnational connections to the West and to the South. In 1979, for the first time ever, U.S. trade with Asia surpassed U.S. trade with Europe. Only began in 1979. There's sort of a reorientation from West to East, and it's gotten much bigger ever since, wildly disproportional to trade with Europe. And Spanish in this same decade, which you've got to remember in the United States is always viewed as primarily a Latin American language, no doubt to the chagrin of citizens of Madrid, uh, but Spanish for the first time in this decade surpassed French as the most popular second language to learn. I, I mostly tonight want to resist my own peculiar memories and impressions of the 1970s rather than those of the analytical historian that I've since become. But I do recall distinctly one of my closest friends in high school be being a, an outstanding Spanish student and all of us thinking that she was peculiar. Now, she, she was peculiar only in the sense that she was farsighted and she wound up in a career in international business that wound up taking her close to the top of the Pfizer Corporation and spending much of the intervening decades in Latin America and learning Portuguese as well to spend time in Brazil. And we were all busily hunkered down with our traditional language studies in French and Latin, which I dearly loved. They wound up taking me to Italy. I mean, it's a great thing. I'm not speaking against it. But there's an amazing transition that happens. In 1970, Spanish was odd in mainstream American classrooms, still sort of the minority idea. By 1980, it shifted. It's become the majority, and it's going to race on from there so that today, French is much more difficult to fit into one's schedule in terms of the sheer number of options. So things have, have changed in that regard. This logic of equal rights and inclusion even incorporated non-humans in this decade, thanks to the 1973 Endangered Species Act, 
which wrote into US law for the first time ever the right of animal species to habitat and to survival, and laid the groundwork thereby uh, for the movement for animal rights and the growth of vegetarianism more broadly in this culture. Political reform in Washington, finally, was one last manifestation of this egalitarian spirit that predominated in American life in the 1970s, particularly in the first half of the decade. With the effort, in terms of political reform, to make government more democratic by, in particular, restraining the imperial presidency, think Richard Nixon and Watergate. Uh, most dramatic here were the 1975 congressional investigations into abuses by the CIA and by the FBI, which riveted the nation for much of that year. And this political reform effort uh, also involved limiting the corrupting influence of wealth on politics through campaign finance reform. As Americans moved toward reform and toward the elimination of the remnants of discrimination from public life, as they moved in this direction, so too did the world at large make a major turn in the 1970s away from formal inequality, away from colonialism, and away from empire. It's the same story on an international scale. In the European sphere, for example, the last great overseas empire, the Portuguese, caved in with the liberation of Angola and Mozambique in southern Africa. The penultimate racist state minority white-ruled Rhodesia, gave up the ghost in 1979 and was transformed into Zimbabwe, while the final wave that would soon wash minority rule out of neighboring South Africa, the last readout of legal white supremacy, began to build among the students of the Soweto Township uh, in Johannesburg in 1976. In the less formal American sphere of empire, that was the European sphere, in the American sphere, the same process is at work, the same process of liberation, of national self-assertion. Vietnam, in the 1970s, fought its way free of US occupation. That's not usually the way we state that fact in this culture, is it? We usually have a slightly different set of verbs and nouns. We talk about the loss in Vietnam, the tragedy, et cetera. No, from the Vietnamese perspective, they fought their way free of US occupation. Panama negotiated a return of control of the Canal Zone. Nicaragua overthrew the pro-American dictatorship of the Somoza family. And Iran did the same thing by driving the last Shah, Reza Pahlavi, into exile. In the Soviet sphere, that is, the other of the three great spheres of empire, empire entered its terminal stage when Red Army troops marched across the Amu Darya River into Afghanistan and into eventual disaster. Dissident movements in Russia and Eastern Europe gained traction precisely in these years of the mid-1970s, and that led to the creation in Poland of Solidarity, the very first labor union in a communist state which is really a, a fascinating idea if you think about it very long. It's an extraordinary admission, creating a labor union in a communist state, an admission of the failure of communism to achieve its supposedly highest priority, the well-being of the working class. Within eight years, East Germans would tear down the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Empire would dissolve, stunning American cold warriors whose entire worldview had for two generations hinged on the pre-existence of a powerful, permanent Soviet enemy. Across the globe, then, human rights organizations became an important force in international affairs in the 1970s. Amnesty International, for example, and this is a nice symbol of it, uh, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1977. 
a recognition of the rising sense of attention being paid to human rights. More broadly, old hierarchies of race and class, I'm sorry, of race and sex, of some people lording over other people solely on the basis of their group identity, those older hierarchies lost much of their power to be understood as natural and right. Colonialism and empire had been built, as had male supremacy, been built on decades, centuries, and millennia of assumptions of the natural order of human hierarchies. And that set of hierarchies loses much of its power right here in the 1970s. It had been weakened before, but here's where it hits the final skids. Replacing these hierarchies, these now seemingly artificial hierarchies of race and sex was a new hierarchy considered more truly natural than those old ones, now revealed to be artificial and discriminatory. This new hierarchy was the sorting out of people in what was seen as their natural socioeconomic levels by the operation of the free market. This would produce a natural and just hierarchy, was the new belief. This growing commitment to laissez-faire, to let it be in the French, I know that's a lost concept now that I've spoken a little about the rise of Spanish, but the growing commitment to laissez-faire solutions to economic and political problems was the second powerful undercurrent in American and world history in the 1970s. With unnatural barriers based on irrelevant group identities now largely eliminated from public life, it's not that discrimination is, is all gone, nor is prejudice on the private side, but in public life, most, with most of this now eliminated, proponents of the free market, sometimes known as neoliberals, sometimes even as libertarians, though they're kind of extreme versions of neoliberals, could more readily claim that the inequalities that now remained in the world were the just and reasonable result of letting the natural laws of supply and demand operate and letting people rise and fall on the basis of their abilities and on the basis of how hard they worked, rather than by sticking them in some group that deserved to be higher or lower based on what they looked like. In other words, what was understood to be natural in social relations had changed. Historian George Fredrickson of Stanford University uh, has called this a global capitalism that draws no color line because it seeks customers and collaborators from every race. William Widener, who's now the uh, president of Las Vegas's huge Venetian gambling resort, some of you perhaps have even been there, explained this same dynamic about this new kind of capitalism recently in regard to the current rapid rise in the number of Asian gamblers uh, present in Las Vegas. This is a merit system here, Widener told a reporter. The highest quality players will get whatever they want. The Chinese are now the highest and best quality players in the world, so they'll have preference. We don't care how tall you are, how short you are, how fat you are, what color you are. Green is the most important color. In the United States, the shift away from a belief in government management toward instead allowing markets alone to provide solutions was most dramatically visible in 1973 in the elimination of the military draft, the draft that provided the manpower and woman power, in this case primarily manpower, for the US military, and the creation instead, beginning in 73, of an all-voluntary military force in which, if you think about it, supply and demand, competitive recruiting, rather than the obligations of citizenship, would now determine who would bear arms to defend the nation. 
This is a trend uh, that has reached new and unprecedented heights in the current war in Iraq, uh, where private contractors and security forces have been central to the U.S. strategy there for better and worse. In the field of education, two Supreme Court decisions of the 1970s, known as San Antonio versus Rodriguez and Milliken versus Bradley, one in San Antonio, one in Detroit. But in this field of education, these two Supreme Court decisions ruled that wealthier school districts did not have to share either funding or students with poorer school districts. And thus, the Supreme Court determined that educational quality, quality was not a constitutional right, but rather would be functionally, in practical terms, a result of the real estate market and where people could afford to live, which school district they could afford to find housing in. Similarly, in the business world, the new free market orientation also guided the beginnings of federal deregulation in 1978 with the airline and trucking industries, as well as telecommunications, which brought all the advantages and disadvantages that we have enjoyed ever since, including cheaper average prices on the one hand and more crowded planes and less customer service on the other. Most of us tend to notice the latter rather than the former when we travel these days. We're, we, we notice the burdens rather than the liberation and the fact that prices for airline tickets have actually gone down over time in terms of real, when they're considered as real, the real cost with inflation factored in. This momentous shift toward deregulation had the support not just of conservative Republicans, but also of moderate Democrats and liberal Democrats, people like President Carter and Senator Ted Kennedy. Uh, and it began well before the election of Ronald Reagan to the White House in 1980. The first congressional committee hearings on the issue of deregulation were initiated in 1975, and Ted Kennedy was deeply involved in them. The declining status of government and the public sphere appeared dramatically as well in the tax revolt that came to define the year 1978, especially in California, where Proposition 13 was passed, but with a resounding margin, uh, and that sharply cut property taxes uh, and radically reduced Sacramento's budget, and thus reduced the kinds and numbers of services that the state of California could provide to its citizens, including California's once vaunted but now much missed public education system. And we have seen a steady decline in tax rates ever since, along with the growing resentment visible in American life at the very idea of collectively funding projects for the common good, other than the military, always the sacred ground for common spending. But other forms of collective spending are deeply sus uh, are, are considered suspect by a wide swath of Americans. And indeed, it is almost a kind of default setting in American politics to say that one stands against taxes, to say that one stands for fewer taxes, for lower taxes. Think about the last time you heard a political leader honestly say that they believed that we needed to raise taxes, which, of course, everybody in their right mind knows that we do, if you look at our debt load. I mean, it's. But well, <laughs> no, that's not a 1970s issue, but you can see where it comes from. It comes from 1978, and the pattern since then has been directly down, and you can watch tax rates drop rather uh, dramatically across the years since the late 1970s. In fact, it's hard for some people to remember that, that, that the uh, highest uh, income tax rates in the U.S. for the federal tax system, were as, those were as high as 90% back in the late 1950s under Dwight Eisenhower. He was a communist from Kansas. He was a conservative Republican general and former commander of the European theater in World War II. Okay. The logic of this free market won out in some other areas as too. In other areas, it, it won out in the abortion debate 
in a way that has not much been talked about, I don't think, after the Roe versus Wade decision of 1973. Uh, the 1976 Hyde Amendment passed by the Congress, named after Henry Hyde, the very conservative Republican congressman from Illinois, the Hyde Amendment, three years after Roe, prohibited the use of federal funds to pay for abortions for indigent women, for women who could not afford them. So abortion, after 1973 and 1976, practically speaking, was available if you could afford it, which is a true market solution. I mean, that's what the market's all about. If you can afford it, you can have it. This shift to free market solutions framed the growth as well of the now enormous gambling industry. And the symbolic moment here was the 1976 referendum held in New Jersey to allow casinos to be constructed and to allow gambling to happen within them in Atlantic City, in the state of New Jersey far from the golden shores of Nevada and the glittering towers of uh, Las Vegas. This embodied a change uh, from concerns about the negative moral impact as well of gambling, a longtime concern in America, to instead allowing people increasingly to simply do whatever they wanted to do with their own money. And instead, maybe even to using gambling increasingly as a way to, to raise government revenue in a low tax era to make up for some of those tax cuts that were going on. And this logic regarding gambling has since spread pervasively throughout the country in such forms as state lotteries, present in almost every state now, but unknown back in the early years of this period I'm describing. Uh, this logic has also taken the form of riverboat uh, uh, slot machines, think Council Bluffs, up the road, and vast casinos on Native American reservations, most famously places like Foxwoods in, in Connecticut. The nation, in other words, in regard to gambling, has become increasingly like Nevada. You could write the last 35 years of American life as the Nevadaization of the nation. Probably, that's probably another project in the future I'll have to get to. But this nation, I think, in, in some ways has really become so much more like Nevada that we might reverse the old alluring slogan about what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Remember that? N nowadays, the much more accurate uh, rendering would be what happens in Vegas is coming to the rest of us, too. So just wait. You'll only have to go to Council Bluffs instead of to Vegas. It'll be a lot cheaper, especially now that they've finished those direct flights. And it is the same free market reasoning that has helped spawn these enormous growth and mainstreaming also in this era of the pornography industry, which, and again, the symbolic moment here is 1972, two major films that come out. One is Last Tango in Paris, the first uh, explicitly erotic, if not actually pornographic, an explicitly erotic film which um, has a major star, Hollywood star Marlon Brando in it, and Deep Throat which is important not for its production values, which are pathetic, but for its reception, which was mainstream. And this was a novelty to have, to have X-rated, obviously pornographic films without any artistic justification, uh, watched by all kinds of elite cultural figures and mainstream people, men and women, and to have it talked about and even reviewed in mainstream publications. This was a breakthrough toward liberation, toward corruption, take your pick but this is a new world that we're entering into. It's the logic of letting the laws of supply and demand provide what people want, regardless of what may or may not be good for them or what may or may not be good for society as a whole. In fact, I might just add that 
it's not also the logic of traditional conservatism, at least by any sense of the word that used to make sense in this country, because traditional conservatism believed above all else that the purpose of government was to create and to sustain a virtuous citizenry. Now, I don't mean to insult anybody from Vegas, but that's not usually what people think is being created in Nevada nor spread across the country in the form of the gambling industry or in the form of the, the increasing pornographication, I guess you'd call it, of American life, the increasing, uh, increasingly explicit sexualization of every aspect of American life. Now, the turn toward free markets in the 1970s, you won't be surprised to know at this point, was not just a national story. It was a global story. In the same way that this shift I mentioned earlier toward greater formal equality and inclusiveness uh, in this decade was also a worldwide rather than a merely national process. Let me suggest a few examples of this. In Latin America, General Augusto Pinochet overthrew the elected government of socialist Salvador Allende in Chile and enshrined there in Chile instead the free market gospel preached by University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman. Who, in, who went on, in fact, three years later in 1976 to become the first free market economist to win the Nobel Prize in Economics, a major sort of turn away from old Keynesian economic theory, which had dominated the, the uh, selection process of Nobel P uh, Prize winners in that field. In Europe, privatization came to the United Kingdom first with the election in 1979 of conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher famous perhaps above all else for her declaration that, quote, there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and individual women. Anti-communist organizing began to gain traction in the eastern half of the European continent in these years, a response in no small part to the failure of communist regimes there under Soviet domination to provide the kind of consumer goods widely available in the capitalist West. And Eastern Europeans and citizens of the Soviet Union began increasingly to demand that they have access to the world that was increasingly visible to them in Western Europe and on television and by radio and other forms of communication in the United States. People across the globe were losing faith in the welfare states and the socialist states that had emerged from the ashes of World War II. And governments we're turning instead to the mechanism of the market as a way to stimulate economic growth after the worldwide recession of the early 1970s, triggered most dramatically by that first oil crisis, the OPEC oil embargo of 1973. The vast scale and the diversity of the earth assured that such a trend was not uniform. It doesn't march in lockstep. China, Latin America, North America, Africa, don't all march simply down the road in very logical fashion, but they wind up moving in the same direction. It's not uniform, but it is surprisingly similar in the ultimate direction they're headed. Even Vietnam and Nicaragua, which spent the 1970s building revolutionary socialist states, would soon change their minds. These exceptional boats, if you will, to use an aquatic metaphor, paddling upstream in the 1970s would soon, within 10 years, be turned around and swept along with the rising current of the capitalist river. The most dramatic evidence of all of this global shift away from socialism came in the world's largest country, the one that had also long been the most fervidly anti-capitalist and specifically anti-American country in terms of its government that of the People's Republic of China. After the death of Mao Zedong, 
1976. And after a brief interlude that followed of a succession struggle in Beijing, a new regime emerges under Deng Xiaoping and begins to introduce private property and market reforms, what some wags at the time like to call market Leninism sort of to show that the Leninist party is still in control, but Marx has nothing to do with it anymore, and markets have a great deal to do with it. He introduces private property and market reforms in order to end economic stagnation, and Chinese industrial growth since then has, of course, radically altered world economic history. The world simply doesn't look the same, thanks to the Chinese Industrial Revolution that was initiated in 1978. Together, then, these two central developments that gathered force in the 1970s, of greater egalitarianism and inclusion, and a world that, has, uh, that have granted greater formal equality and rights to all persons. The, I'm sorry, this, <laughs> these two developments, uh, this, this business of egalitarianism on one hand and an inclusivity that it carries with it. And on the other hand, deregulation and free market economics, these two have shaped the US and they've shaped the world in very clear ways that have granted greater formal equality and rights to all persons on the one hand. It's a more egalitarian world, not just a more egalitarian country, while permitting increasingly sovereign market forces to further widen distinctions of wealth and class on the other hand. So the distribution of income and wealth has grown steadily less equal since the late 1970s. A fiercely competitive, if more inclusive, individualism has been the result, and a nation and a world simultaneously more equal and less equal. Now, the feminism that I mentioned earlier, the feminism that has wound up filtering throughout mainstream American life from the 1970s onwards, turned out not to be the more radical 1960s dream of making new women, of making new men, or of creating a more caring and compassionate society. It proved to be instead a feminism narrowed to the channel of individual rights and equal opportunity for competition as individuals. All would be included now on juries, on playing fields, in corporations, everywhere, but only as individuals. Ever since, women have been increasingly able in this culture to choose a lifestyle of whatever mix of family life and work life that they can put together on their own. The new egalitarianism thus did not change the system, but included all within the system one marked by individual choice, the logic of consumer capitalism. A de facto agreement had emerged that seems to say, if I were to sort of paraphrase it, all are welcome to join the game now, but we're dropping our gloves and we're playing for keeps with no more state regulation to act as a referee. Welcome and you're on your own. What I am suggesting, ultimately, is that for a generation now, the United States if you will, has been moving both left and right at the same time. And that a wide area of general agreement has come to characterize Americans' views of their culture and their political economy. This common ground of increasing consensus is often, to put it mildly, obscured by the sound and fury of culture warriors, and especially of electoral seasons like the one we're in. We are, after all, supposed to be neatly divided up into red states and blue states. It's sort of common sense now. Humorous Dave Barry has pricelessly rendered these supposedly opposing and completely opposing forces uh, in the following 
fashion. On the red side, we have what Barry calls ignorant, racist, fascist, knuckle-dragging, NASCAR-obsessed, cousin-marrying, roadkill-eating, tobacco-juice-dribbling, gun-fondling, religious, fanatic rednecks. And on the blue side, we have godless, unpatriotic, pierced-nosed, Volvo-driving, France-loving, left-wing, communist, latte-sucking, tofu-chomping, holistic, wacko, neurotic, vegan, weenie perverts. In fact, for better and worse, American society for 35 years has been in the process of becoming both more socially inclusive and more economically differentiated, rather than simply becoming more conservative. We are both more equal and less equal than we used to be. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Please, please, wade in. Objections are also welcome. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. When's the book? The book will be out, well, theoretically. Uh, it'll be out with Princeton University Press in probably in 2011, maybe 2012. It depends. They seem to move a little quicker on, on certain books than others, I've noticed. I think Tina Fey now has a new book deal worth a few million coming. I think that'll be out in like two days probably, right? <laughs> but in, in academic circles, publishing runs a lot slower. So I'm thinking it'll probably be two or three. I'm partway through the manuscript. It'll be a book on which this is based, so. We've all had a first look. There you go, right, right. Yeah. Um, if what you're saying is true about mm -hmm. America becoming both more left and more right at the uh -huh. same time, how do you think, how would you hypothesize that that's going to affect America's position in the world? Because it seems like part of the thing that made America such a world power is the fact that all of its people, no matter their background or, or political ideologies, religious backgrounds, anything, were able to come together as one. Mm -hmm. If we're becoming mm -hmm. more polar, how will mm -hmm. that affect our status in the world? Well, that's an excellent question. It's also very complicated to figure out how to answer. Partly because it also involves the future, and you know, historians are no better at the future than anybody else. But, but I, I guess here's how I would think about it. Um, the United States, as I see it, is really remains a model to the rest of the world, even in these times of extraordinary decline that we're in right now, in terms of reputation because of wars overseas and in terms of economic performance. Even in these times, the U.S. remains a very powerful model. And in terms of its egalitarianism, I think it has been the leading edge of what I've tried to describe as a worldwide phenomenon. And the U.S. is a model for that, particularly for the status of women in this culture, but also in all these other ways. And you can pick this up anytime you read any major newspaper. You'll find other stories of recent immigrants describing the relative status they have here if they're gay or disabled or something else um, compared to where they came from. So the U.S. is important. It's not the only nation to believe in egalitarianism by far, but it is an important model. And I think the same is true with the marketing, uh, with the whole shift toward market values. And that is something, you know, that that spread, as I've suggested, is very much a broader phenomenon. What this will do to the status of the United States, I'm not sure that these two will be the drivers of changes in the status of the United States. I think that the broader concerns about the wasting of the American asset of goodwill that has happened across the last eight years, but not just the last eight years, is, uh, is a bigger, longer-standing problem. And I think it's also the question of the U.S. place in the world economy is quite profound and is inevitably one that's going to decline. 
um, although that's hardly tragic from a kind of world historical perspective, it's predictable that a nation that had been in a uniquely elite status in the world economy is going to have a gentle decline from that position. So I'm not sure exactly where we're headed in the future on that. Um, I'm going to have to chew on that. That'll be, that may make another year on the book. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. another excellent question. And I think the, the, the simple and blunt answer is that, yes, there'll be some lessons learned, but the scale to which they'll, the degree to which they'll be learned is not so clear to me. I'm, I do not expect a return to something like the New Deal order. I think, I guess I tend to, I guess th this may be a little surprising because I'm a rather optimistic person in most ways, but in this regard, I, my sense is that the changes in the American set of public values and language that we find acceptable about the role of the government in American life, about taxes, about citizens' obligations, about all the kinds of communal attitudes that used to define much of what made the U.S. a cohesive culture in some ways from the 30s through the 70s at least, all of that is pretty far gone. And to recapture it is going to take a mighty big project of attention to communal values. Yeah, it's going to, I, my sense is it's going to take m it, it, more than that because it's a matter of, re of finding, again, a different kind of language and way of imagining ourselves. We have sort of um, taken a large-scale industrial sander with very rough sandpaper and have sort of taken off whole sections of the veneer of com communality in this culture. And we've got it down to the point of the assertion of the self and you see this in so many different realms to such an extent that it's going to be challenging for people to come back to that. And I'm not sure how that process will happen. I think, personally, I think it's ultimately a spiritual issue, not necessarily a religious issue, though it could be. In other words, it has to do with one's own sense of where one's place in the, in the nature of things is. And in this culture, we've, we've really shrunk that down to this narrow little individualism. And it's ironic in a culture that is very religious in many measurable ways that the more communal aspects of the American, of, of the Christian tradition are not much attended to in this country. Things like, say, the book of Acts and the, story, and the description of the disciples of Jesus as, as uh, holding all things in common. You know, that's not the kind of thing we talk about much in Sunday school, right? But, but that's the kind of reclamation project. And you can do that in the Jewish tradition. You can do it in, uh, in all kinds of other secular traditions as well. But that's a pretty big project. I see it as an educational project. It's probably just the weakness of an educator is that I tend to think in those terms. The Depression can provide the shock to make some of that happen. But it's your generation that's going to do this. And God knows I hope that when you are the age of your grandparents, you are not dealing with a culture that is so obsessed with what is in it for me only. But, but how we get from here to there is, is a pretty big struggle ahead of us. It's, I, I guess I should say it's a moral struggle. As, much, as well as an economic one and a political one. It has to engage in all, just as the, the black freedom struggle in this country had to engage at all levels, economic, political, moral, spiritual, to sort of win the day. And it won the day. So it's not undoable, but it's a big project. 